A two-goal third-period comeback nets the Canucks a massive two points against the Rangers at Rogers Arena. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance. You can read Thomas's work at The Athletic, of course. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And Drancer, finally, it feels like it's been forever. We've only been doing the show a few weeks. I can't remember the last time we had a win to talk about. But the Canucks did it. They won a game at home in front of their fans. 3-2 against the Rangers last night. Well, and it wasn't their first win of the season, but it feels like the first win that they've had in a long time where it mattered in a different way. Like it was a performance that was exciting, interesting, passionate. Like it had everything you could ever want full value. And it came on the heels of a second period that was extraordinarily dispiriting. Right. I mean, Rogers arena was not packed last night. No. And in the first period and the second period, it was quiet. There was no energy. I thought the Canucks form actually came around in the second period. We just kind of didn't notice it because the power play was so bad that it obscured what Vancouver was beginning to do at five on five, which was something we haven't seen all year, meaningfully generate high danger chances come out in the, at, at the end of the second period, there was a scattering of boos for the team as they left the ice. And I thought, oh boy, this could get, you know, uh, this could get grimy. Like this could be a really tense atmosphere in the third if the Canucks don't come out and rest control of this game. And of course they did that. And as our colleague Elliot Friedman joked on the on the Merrick show, right, caused a lot of Canucks fans to delete their tweet drafts uh, calling for jobs. Um, you know, not. A, I mean, I think he was kidding, but he wasn't wrong. But yeah, like. Kidding, not kidding, kind of there from from, from Elliot Friedman. Hundred percent. He 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 wasn't wrong. Like we have to be able to have a sense of humor. Uh, Travis Green said post game that it was quiet in the room in the second intermission. Um, you know, Garland and Miller talked about the club having sort of a quiet faith that they turned it around. And you know, it's a new group, right? This isn't a group that's had a comeback win. They haven't come out in a third period and you know figured out for figured it out like dug themselves out of a hole the way that they did on. Tuesday night, and we'll see what impact that has in terms of this club's confidence level, in terms of that camaraderie, in terms of some of those intangible factors that do matter over the course of a season if you're going to make the playoffs on a on a knife's edge. So in that third period, though, they dominated. Like, they legitimately dominated. It wasn't that they got two goals. It's that they had chances aplenty. It's that they were churning shifts in the Rangers end like they were the better five on five team they were full value for that comeback and then by the time they have that wild five on three sequence with Thatcher Demko you know basically stripping down as he's making saves (laughs) legitimately standing on his head right by the time they have that the building standing and completely into it and just completely bought in to this gutty win from the team that man man did they need that this market needed it. It was like a reminder after 595 days playing in, in a closed building, right, through the pandemic, and then 220 minutes of, like, arduous, painful-to-watch hockey. It was a 20-minute reminder of the potential that this game has to be completely scintillating. 
650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. <laughs> I did it again. Yeah. I, I, need, I need a swear jar for that. Uh, get your thoughts in 650-650. We always want to hear from you and involve you in the conversation. D- and Dunbar Lumbar, is, uh, they're the, like, uh, they deal with backs. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they deal with yeah. backs. And then down the street is Dun- Dunbar Lumber. Yes, there yeah. we go. See, you're doing it too. I've, I'm, uh, I'm spreading it to I, you I caught now. myself though. <laughs> um, it wasn't just that they were going into the third period again, down two goals at home again, having not scored a goal yet in the game. It was the shape of how it happened too, right? Because as you said, they were the better team in that second period. It wasn't always easy to see because the power play was so extraordinarily frustrating when they had those consecutive opportunities. And we'll get into a little bit more about the power play throughout the course of the show, but you know, they take the they get the three consecutive chances on the power play, and you just know because of how NHL repping works, the Rangers are gonna get theirs, right? They're eventually going to go back on the man advantage. Now <laughs> Maybe I should have expected this. I didn't expect it to be as a result of the Canucks taking another too many men penalty almost as soon as their own power play ended, but that's how it turned out. And of course, of course, the Rangers scored just seconds into their own power play after the Canucks had failed again and again and again to generate chances. So that's deflating for the crowd. And then late in that second period, Elias Patterson has the beautiful opportunity on a two on one with JT Miller that just misses. And for that player <laughs> right. in that moment to yeah. miss that goal is just post. so deflating, right? And you could just feel, again, the energy leaving the building. You can only imagine what it must have done for Elias Pettersson, for the team around him. And it felt like, you know, I said on the show yesterday, Drancer, I just wanted that game to be different than what we'd been seeing consistently yep. from the Canucks. And through two periods, while there were positive signs, the overall shape of the game felt kind of similar, right? Okay, I, another game where they can't score, another game that's very frustrating where the crowd isn't in it because they don't have anything to cheer for. They desperately, desperately needed that third period, right? From a team perspective, from a bunch of individual perspectives, from the fans' perspective, they needed that comeback in the third. And you're right, the most... The most compelling part of it wasn't, you know, they didn't get any soft goals past Shesterkin, right? They they did it legitimately. Maybe the overtime winner. Sure. But but at 5-on-5, five five, yeah. to key the comeback, they did it by building on their performance from earlier in the night and actually having sustained zone time, creating chances, connecting passes in the offensive zone. <laughs> like, yeah, it sounds so simple, but it's like, oh my goodness, they, yeah. you know, they're uh, moving the puck on the first Miller goal. <laughs> Pedersen sends it down low. They, they combine a, a high, low pass to Garland and then yeah. Garland, Garland sends it East West, right? It's like, wow, that was really effective. We haven't seen that. No, we just haven't seen that yet this season. High, low passing in particular on in zone play has been a massive, massive issue for this team. Pedersen in general yesterday, that was his best game for sure. And, I think it's important, though, that we, like, zoom out and don't allow the fact that Pedersen has struggled to this point through 10 games to obscure what our expectations should be of him based on 165 games going into the season. It was a fine game by Pedersen's standards, but it was a sign of progress anyway. I thought he looked... He, he looked like the low end of what Pedersen usually looks like. And and that, you know, you'll take that. Like, you'll take that at this point for the Canucks. They still need him to be an elite contributor, frankly, if they're going to go anywhere. But uh, I liked that shift a lot. I liked that pass to Garland. He should have had the goal, too. Yep. Uh, that, was, that was a sign of meaningful progress, anyway, from Elias Pedersen. And how good is Connor Garland right now? I mean, Connor Garland's clearly the straw that stirs the drink. 
And not only that, you know, he's got eight points. They're all at five on five. And Connor Garland hasn't been on the ice for a single Canucks goal at five on five that he hasn't picked up a point on. Yeah. Like, he's literally the guy making everything happen for this team. Um, you know, he got moved up with Pedersen. They played seven minutes together. The team began to control play in a meaningful way. We talked about that a little bit the other day, right? That that Garland and Pedersen maybe made some sense. Uh, I don't. I don't think like when they reset their lines for practice on Thursday, whatever combination they trot out, it has to have Garland yep. on Pedersen's right side. Like that's an absolute must. He probably also has to be on power play one. You know, like he could work the fifty-fifty. Like whatever you need, Connor Garland's got you. Um, at this point for this team, he's everything right now for the Canucks. And then I, I want to talk about the Pod Colson goal too, yes. because everyone will pay attention to the shot and the finish. But I, what I loved about it was that Lafreniere got away with one. Lafreniere was checking Pod Colson and he basically horse collared him to the ground. Should have absolutely 100% and probably would have been if not for the slanted way that penalties had favored the Canucks to that point in the game. By the way, I hate that we always say stuff like that and just accept it I as know. normal. That's just how and it, it goes. doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't make sense and the NHL has to yeah. do better on this front in, uh, in um, among many others. But Pod Colson gets hauled down, horse collared. Stands up, beats the guy who checked him to the net. I love that. There's something so competitive about that sequence that I just think speaks really well toward a, a young player in this league. And, and Lafreniere is a young player too, but a young player in this league just figuring it out and wanting it and going and getting that goal. That was great. a great play from him, a great pass by Garland, but it was the... It was the recovery. It yeah. was the it was the it was the beat the guy back to your feet, beat the guy back to the net. Uh, I loved everything about that sequence from Pod Colson. And Pod Colson, I thought, you know, obviously he gets the goal, so it stands out. But I thought he looked lively at other moments mm-hmm. in the game. You know, he bringing his energy, yeah. yeah, bringing his physicality uh, to bear. And you know, p- people will look at it and okay, he only played seven minutes in that game, just over seven minutes, and he scores a goal. And obviously, the immediate reaction is, well, he has to play more. And look, that's fair enough. I would like to see him, you know, up around 10 minutes a game. But it's also, it's a nice luxury for the Canucks to have a bottom six player like Vasily Colson, who does have more of that offensive upside, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's a bottom six guy who can help you chase a game in the third period. You know what I mean? Totally. And that, that's not something that they necessarily have a lot of in other places, right? You, yep. can, you can like, you know, Justin Bailey and Jason Dickinson, but they're not the guys out there that you want when you need a goal in the third period. Vasily Colson can play that role, right? So I, I like having him down the lineup in a spot where, hey, when we need it, we can we can get him some extra minutes in the third, and and we, we have confidence that he can help us chase down the game. Yeah, I just want him in a consistent spot. I want him yep. in a consistent spot, and the reason that I'm not too worked up about about the minutes because you know nine to eleven nine to eleven minutes that's sort of my basic barometer but when you have that much of the game played at special teams like when you have that much of a ref show on uh, on display as you did on Tuesday night at Rogers Arena you know he's not playing special teams he's not gonna get a ton of ice in those situations I think eventually he'll be a penalty killing guy he should be like clearly there the skill to be that is there um, and at some point, you got to audition him. Like, I actually think you probably should audition him at some point this season. I mean, we're already at the point where they've pulled out Justin Bailey and, you know, like, right. Like, how do you become trusted as a penalty killer without doing it? Without doing it. Yeah. Like, until you've done it, you're not trusted, right, to do it. And then once you've done it, you have to, like, be successful right away. And then you're a fixture in the lineup. Like, at some point, there's almost nothing this team needs more than a middle six forward who's a really good penalty killer. You know, like that's like the and thing. And can contribute offensively. Right. That's yeah. the thing they need more than anything else. They need, 
you know, 2012 Chris Higgins. Like, that's what they need no. so desperately because those are the types of guys you win with. Uh, Pod Colson could be that guy for them. Maybe Niels Hoaglander could be that guy for them. I actually thought, because Hoaglander was in the box for the five-on-three sequence and then came out uh, just as right. things were going wild. And and things got things were already so squirrely when he stepped out on the ice that he didn't get like a ton of chance there. But I was watching him thinking, or at least when he was about to come out of the box before the Myers giveaway, I was thinking in my head, you know, if he comes out and plays well in this sequence, that might be his ticket right, yeah. to actually get a look at four and five. It seems like it's so hard to break through that barrier. Anyway, at some point, we're getting, we digress, but at some point this season, auditioning Pod Colson in that spot for me is a must. Not until, though, he's comfortable, more comfortable, clearly, with some of the nuances in the NHL game. Areas that even last night I saw, you know, some learning curve on display and you know we've, we've talked about those areas at, at length but I, I still think that's um, a work in progress I, I definitely was thinking as they were killing that five on three and it became clear they were going to kill the first part of it and I was like oh boy it's Niels Hoaglander stepping yeah. back on the ice like, good luck buddy this is a pretty big <laughs> moment for you you don't have a lot of penalty killing experience <laughs> right. and you're expected to be out there and it ended up being more about Thatcher Demko obviously than anything Niels Hoaglander was doing but it was definitely a sense of wow this is this is an interesting position for him to skate back on uh, to the ice in for sure and you know, we talked about the performance uh, from Elise Patterson and Connor Garland and JT Miller once they got together as a trio. I thought a big story of the game last night was just we've talked so much about how the Canucks' best players need to be effective and how effective they need to be given how this roster is constructed. And I look at last night, I think in the entire top six and the top four D, did anyone have a poor game? Would you would you signal anyone out and say they didn't play very well, right? And I thought even the people I think so, yeah. who, who did struggle were farther down the lineup, right? But I thought the Canucks' best players, the top of their roster, really showed out last night. I mean, I think they did overall, but at five on five, I still did I still don't like Hughes Tucker Pullman. Yep. Right? I mean, but then Tucker Pullman was great five on three. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was a huge – he made the first save. He did. Like, he made the first save. That yep. saved the game. And then he had a key shot block, too, uh, late. I mean, I like Tucker Pullman's in-zone defense. You know what I mean? Like, I like the mobility. I like the physicality. I like his play shorthanded. Uh, I just think there needs to be a separation from Quinn Hughes. Like, that just hasn't worked. We just need to accept that it hasn't worked. And that's sort of, again, why I think that the Hamannick return could be a really big deal for this team. Yeah, I want to get to Hamannick and Shen, uh, that pairing, in a little bit. I do like this unsigned text that comes in, 650-650. Being a new PK player is like the credit card people saying, you can't have a card till you have credit, but you need a card to build credit. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so it's a bit of a catch-22, right? So so when I went to the United States, when I I took the Panthers job, I had zero credit. They don't don't recognize my Canadian credit. So I had like four credit cards that had a $100 limit. You know what I mean? And I'd spend $100 yep, yep. on all of them and then pay them off immediately to sort of fast track my American credit. That's what Vasily Pod Colson needs. He needs a Discover card or a, or a, what's the Capital One. He needs the Capital One card that I had in Florida, just paying it off every three days to up my credit. Well, he needs he needs low. You're, what you're talking about is low leverage situations to build your reputation, right? He needs the, the Canucks need to like get up four or five nothing in a game at some point, and yeah. then take a penalty, and then yeah. okay, Pod Colson and Hoaglander, go do totally. your thing, right? Yeah. Build those reps in very low stakes situations. That's what they need, absolutely. But I like that comparison. I love it uh, from the unsigned, especially because it speaks to me directly. Yes, I'm just like, oh, exactly. I've been there. You have the been in that spot. Um, this text comes in from Johnny Mac, a gutsy performance from Thatcher Demko and a comeback win with Garland, Miller, and Pod Colson. Feels like it could be a turning point 
for this season. And we have to talk about Thatcher Demko because the overall performance was excellent, specifically the sequence late in the third period on the penalty kill was one of the more remarkable feats of goaltending that I have seen in person. And I want to talk about what Thatcher Demko did. I also want to talk about the reaction from the crowd, right? Because lots of players mentioned it after the game when they spoke to the media that that might have been the loudest they've ever heard Rogers Arena. It's certainly up there for me recently. And it was so interesting because... You know, we're used to, okay, when a goal, a big goal is scored and immediately the crowd goes to the very, very highest level of reaction instantly, right? What I thought was so fascinating about the reaction to those Demko saves was it was a, it was a swell, right? It was a crescendo. It started and then it just built it, it built and built and built until it was absolutely deafening. And I thought it was, it was a really remarkable moment. We've talked about the fans just being desperate for something to cheer for and they recognized how special that was and paid it off. And it was it was a really cool moment to be in the building for last night. So hot take, I don't think that was Thatcher Demko's best game of the season. It's just that that sequence was Thatcher Demko's best of the season. And on balance, he's been this team's best player. Yep. So it made sense. But, you know, overall, I didn't think their injuries generated a ton. Like, I don't think they oh, generated. they did not. They yeah. did not. I don't think they generated two goals worth of offense. No. Even, to be totally honest with you. But they probably generated two goals worth of offense just on that sequence. Like outside of that sequence, I don't think they were uh, particularly good, but man, that was just incredible. And, you know, I talked to Demko before the season about Dominic Hasek and his admiration for Dominic Hasek. And he was yeah. explaining to me that there was an, a spatial awareness that Dominic Hasek brought a competitiveness that he admired. And he said, you know, it looks like he's just throwing things out. Like he, he looks like he's, it's an arm here or a flail here, but in fact, there's method to it, that he knows that uh, center net is strong, that, you know, pucks are going to come in at a certain angle most of the time. So long as you're aware of where the puck is in the net is, you know, it can look wild, yeah. but it's actually, it actually requires intelligence to be in that spot. And I couldn't help but think of that as Demko made that scorpion kick save or was stopping pucks with no equipment. And I love JT Miller's comment post game. It's like, felt like he had no gear. It's like, yeah. you know, and all the, and all the photos, like Jeff Vinnick yes. has a great photo and you know, Thatcher Demko's trying to do a post integration and he's got no blocker and he's waving at the referee. I mean, just absolute pandemonium, but so cool to watch them hold that fort. And his performance was completely electric. And, and I promise you like, yeah, he set up out the scorpion kick. Demko did. I, you know, I've never done that before, um, and I believe that. But also, uh, that was not that was not as flailing. Like that was not as random from yeah. Demko as it looked, as it looks. Even when you watch the highlights, like there is there is a level of situational awareness on display there that he has talked about in regards to Hashik, and it was a Hashik like sequence, right? Um, and that I think is on display there. And that's what's so impressive about Demko overall, right? Is there's a there's an overall level of unflappability combined with intelligence, combined with an absolutely first class, like high end work rate, right? Everyone in and around this team will tell you uh, just the guy's a maniac in terms of his work rate. Uh, 
it all came together in that sequence. And, and that's it, right? It's all of those elements. You know, he's, I mean, he's literally has a bare hand waving at the referee, desperately trying, desperately trying to get their attention and get a stop in play. But at the same time, he's completely locked in on the play and he's completely following where the puck is going and putting himself in the position. So it's the, it's the focus, the athleticism, as you said, the preparation that you know goes into that moment. Because obviously there's an element of randomness there and there's an element of luck, right? To be Always able to pull off that save. Yeah. But it's also the culmination of the work he's put in, the study he's done in to even put himself in a position, you know, to get lucky, quote unquote. And yep. it, it really was, as you said, look, okay, full credit to the Canucks for playing well defensively and keeping the pressure on the Rangers. Rangers were bad last night. They did not generate m- m- many dangerous scoring chances no. on Thatcher Demko. When he had to step up, he did. And that was, it was, as I said, just a phenomenal moment to witness and full credit to Thatcher Demko for, as you said, you know, yeah, it, it looks kind of fluky in the moment, but it's the product of lots of hard work and lots of preparation. Uh, Rager texts in, I was sitting five rows behind Demko. The entire section felt like a bunch of younger people. And every single one of us were screaming at the top of our lungs at that sequence of saves. Craziest thing I've ever been part of. As a fan, and that's that, awesome. That was that's how it felt. Yeah, that moment. is how even, it felt. Even in the broadcast gondola, way up in the 500 level, you could feel that energy of people just saying, "Holy cow! What did we just witness? What did we just see? I've I've never seen anything quite like that before." Well, and then you get the standing ovation, right? That lasts. And you know, I was looking at the bench uh, a little bit, and uh, like Vasily Colson was tapping his stick so hard on the on the bench that yeah. I'm pretty sure he broke it. Like, I don't know that for sure because I, I, I wasn't close enough and I wasn't in the room. Like, that's the sort of detail where usually I'd walk over to a player just before they leave and just be like, hey, really quick, did you break your stick celebrating the, you know? Um, it was awesome. And and you got to love that moment, especially with how long we've gone between having that type of energy right. in the building and the fact that none of the Canucks' first three games or the first two periods paid off anything like that. To then have that, you know, I, I mean – we don't root in the press box, but it was hard not to smile and just be like, this This environment is what I missed more than almost anything during the pandemic. Um, quick note on Thatcher Demko. This is, uh, this is, I've been struggling a little bit because I'm so analytical in my overall approach to hockey. But now I talk about the team every game, right? Like every day, right. you and I, we, we meet up here and we do... Uh, we talk about this team. So there's like a daily thing that sort of contradicts my slow burn. Right. Taking the big view. Right. To, yeah. to analyzing this team. And, and there's nowhere that that's truer than my view of a goaltender. Right. Like a goaltender takes forever for me to be like, OK, they've faced 3,000 shots in their career, which Demko hasn't yet. This is probably roughly what they are, like what we can expect. This reflects their true talent. Right. So Demko right now is like a 940 goaltender at five on five. That's the type of goaltending that Vancouver is getting at evens, which is, you know, massively impressive. It, it's hard for me, though, to to accept that that's like the level at right. which he'll play all year. Like he probably won't be a 940 five on five goaltender. 930 would be elite. Like 930 would be elite. What Demko's done to this point in the season is, you know, a step beyond that. And that makes it really tough to analyze because I'm watching this guy play and I'm just like, this guy is absolutely on top of his game. Like, this guy is absolutely lights out, liquid. But, you know, sustaining it. And it's not even just going to be about sustaining it this season. It's like, this is his first year as a workhorse starter, right? Before I'm convinced that Demko is going to be a 935-on-5 guy or a 945-on-5 guy, 
It's not just going to take him doing that all season this year, but probably for two beyond that before I'm like, this guy is, you know, at that level. Um, and he might not be at that level, right? Like, we'll, we'll sort of see. But with the way that the Canucks have played, with the lack of offense that they're generating, even with last night's signs of progress, you know, in mind, um, the level that they need him to be at is just a little bit too high for me right now to be super confident about where this team's at. And, and again, I'm trying to take the short view. I'm trying to look at last night's game as, yeah, an uplifting win for the club and a super entertaining night of hockey for this market, but also just like another brick as we build toward some understanding of what this team actually is in terms of their true talent level. Right now, Demko's been their best player, and it's sort of tough to see how they make the playoffs if he doesn't sustain a level right. of play that were he to sustain it would be, you know, Tukarask, Prime Lundqvist, Prime Luongo level. And that's not a comfortable place, I think, to be at in terms of a, a judging an overall team's quality. And, and this text comes in along those lines, Drance, or at least thinking along the same lines, asking a similar question from KH says, does Demko have the potential to be a historical goalie in the context of the Canucks franchise? Watching him now gives me, gives me the excitement of watching Luongo as a kid. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is that's an incredibly high bar. What Roberto Luongo was able to accomplish in his career, as you said, what Henrik Lundqvist, to be able to not just reach those highs, but to sustain them for as long as goalies like that were able to do, that's so, so rare. So, as you said, it's it's too early to be anointing Thatcher Demko with comparisons like that one. We can certainly appreciate what he's doing in the moment. I think the other good thing from a Canucks perspective long term is – We've talked so much about you know salary cap management and players living up or not living up to their salary uh, in this market. Thatcher Demko doesn't need to be Roberto Luongo or Henrik Lundqvist to live up to his contract, the contract that he's on right now. Right. right? He needs to be a, a very good NHL goalie, but he doesn't need to be a historical NHL goalie to be worth that contract. Oh, no, no, for sure he doesn't. I mean, you, $10 million would be exactly. a historic exactly. NHL goalie in terms of like market value, but... You know, does he have the potential to get there? I think so. Yep. I think so. He's, what, 9-13, 9-12 for his career to this point in terms of his save percentage. Like, Luongo played a, a, almost 1,000 games, or he did play 1,000 games, and had a 9-19 for his career. Right? Like, like, like that's, it's outrageous. The, the, level, yep. the level of play that Luongo is at. Like, I, I see those tweets sometimes. People are like, I feel much more comfortable with Demko and Net than I ever did with Luongo. And I'm like, well, that makes no sense. Luongo is literally one of the top five goalies of all yeah. time. Hall of Fame goalie. Uh, hall, uh, first ballot. Yeah. So, but, but does Demko have the potential to get there? I think so. And, and one thing I really like about him generally and and it makes him a really bad post game quote. Like I think he comes out post game and he's like, I don't care, I don't know, you know, uh, <laughs> right? Like it's really hard to get. But then you talk to him after a practice or something. Like clearly playing in a game and competing takes a lot out of him, and and it still consumes his focus, you know, for for a while after the game. Um, but I like there. There's like an iciness. There's like a. a uh, ice water flowing yep. through his veins that I just think can't help but serve a team well when when it's your goaltender who plays like that. Like, well, without question, he does the things, he does the types of things that give a team that extra boost because they think they've got the guy to win it with. And to your point about his demeanor, even last night after that sequence, which was completely wild and hectic, and he obviously wanted the whistle to blow because he was losing gear, right? Mm -hmm. But his reaction after the whistle did in fact blow and the play was stopped – 
you know, he was not Jordan Bennington out there losing his head. It was it was very calm, having a discussion with the referee about it. It wasn't he wasn't hot. He was just, okay, I wanted that to go a different way, but let's have a discussion about it. You yeah. saw the evidence of that kind of calmness and, and just the the mental makeup. <laughs> and then post game he's like, I'm glad to know that rule now. Right? And it's like, okay, cool. You know, like I mean it's 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 incredible. It's it's truly it's truly he's a remarkable he's a remarkable athlete, but but he's also he also seems to be a remarkable person and has been in my interactions with him anyway. And uh and that's you know, a, a pretty impressive mix, especially at a position as crucial to a team's success and as crucial to this team's success as goaltender. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. 650-650 is the text message inbox. Keep your thoughts coming in. Lots of them coming in. Some of them asking about the Canucks power play. Yeah, it wasn't all it wasn't all roses for the Canucks last night. We do have to get in on the on the power play and what happened with it against the Rangers. That's coming up and more. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd alongside Canucks insider Thomas Drance. The Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And Drancer, look, there's a lot of good vibes coming out of the win. The Canucks 3-2 win last night, you know, we had a texter earlier saying, I think that could be the turning point. The fans at Rogers Arena, they got something to cheer for. The players, they were having a good time post-game talking about how loud the arena arena was. But it wasn't all it wasn't all good. It wasn't all great for the Canucks last night. And uh we might have to bring the tenor of things down <laughs> a little bit here, as you did with Travis Green last night, and talk about some of what Well, he had to talk about the power play. Like, I'm sorry, I know Somebody, it was an yeah. uplifting win, but you know, we're we're sitting there post-game and Travis Green's fielding questions, including for me, that are like, was it fun? Like, was it fun? <laughs> and then finally at the end, I'm like, so how about your 0-6 power play? <laughs> had yeah. to be done. It had to be done. That power play was abysmal. Win or lose. You're right. The power play was going to be a talking point. Yeah. It wasn't just 0 and for 6. It will be all week until they play again on Friday night. Like It will be until they look good in the power play. They were outshot on their first eight minutes of five-on-four ice time. They were outshot. And we've had lots it of can't be outshot. No. My goodness. That's the thing. And it was 0 for 6, which is bad. And that's a talking point anyway. You go 0 for 6. Yeah. It, it looked worse than 0 for 6 somehow, right? You know, oh, yeah. Like, it was, you see 0 for 6, and you think, oh, that's a bad performance on the power play. But you watch what they actually did on the ice, you're like, well, that's a really, really bad they were There were, like, better chances the other way. They had power play score. There was an Oliver Ekman-Larsen rush chance that was an against-the-grain chance while yeah. they had the man advantage. I was blown away. And lots of text coming in about it. This one says Canucks power play is the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Uh, Burke from Kamloops says, you know, great power plays are anchored on puck retrievals. Look at the Oilers where they just outwork the PK. They also have some pretty high skill players, but I take your point. Canucks can't use chase on on the power play one as he does not have the skill or speed to retrieve pucks. That's a common theme, obviously discontent with Alex Chason's pace uh, spot on the power play, but just in general, plenty of plenty of concerns, plenty of questions about what the Canucks are doing 
with the man advantage man advantage and Drancer, the interesting thing is the the unsigned text came in saying you know they're doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results <laughs> that, where that's... where is that definition of in- i always I know, hear right? about this definition of insanity but it's like if i look up the definition of insanity that's not what it says <laughs> i just want to that's a fair point i just want to specify but the interesting thing is to a, to a point, they're doing the same thing over and over again. But in that second period in particular, we saw that there was a little bit of fluidity to the personnel on the power play, right? Alex Chason replaced Brock Besser, who had started the started the game on power play one. Oliver Ekman Larson got some chances in place of Quinn Hughes on power play one. They were mixing it up, but it's just every time the first unit was out there, and look, not that the second unit was any great shakes, but the second unit at least got some shots towards net, but... The first unit just looked completely, I thought, lost, out of ideas, more than anything. Static. Just uninspired. Yeah. But even beyond static, we've seen them be static for a long time. To me, that was a new level of, what are we even trying to do here, right? Like, that seemed to be a question that they did not have the answer to last night. Yeah, and it's all spatial problem solving. I mean, that that's the whole ball game. Uh, but Connor Garland is the answer. Like, Connor Garland's the answer. Uh JT Miller at the net front needs to be tried. Yep. Like needs to be tried. I, I just I just don't think he's enough of a shooting threat on that left circle. You know, and, and teams have been playing the Canucks skinny in terms of the shape of their penalty kill. They haven't necessarily been fading uh, or shading Elias Pettersson the way that we've seen in past years, but the Rangers certainly did last night. Yep. And, you know, I I, I mean when that happens, you'd like to have a big shooting threat on that left circle. And with JT Miller, like he did take one big slap shot, but typically speaking, unless he's on his off flank, of course. he's not he's not really a primary shooting threat there. He's a distributor, and it just feels like that's far too easy for everyone to take away. They've seen too much of it on video. Um, you know, I'd love to see him at the net front, and then you could always flip him back up with rotation, you know, uh, yeah, they they need to they need to try something different. To me, the leading scorer on this team right now, the guy who basically keyed that comeback, you know, and looked really dangerous combining with Oliver Ekman Larson on PP two throughout, um, you know, the game last night. Like, you know, put that guy put that guy with your best players. Like, see if there's something special that he can figure out with Elias Pettersson at this point, especially because what Pettersson and Brock Besser have going between them this year doesn't quite resemble what they have in the past. And it's especially surprising because there is a willingness to put different personnel there, right? Because, again, as I said, Brock Besser started the game, not in a shooting position, as I would like to see, but in the net front spot. Yep. And then they have two bad power plays in the first period, and then the second period, it's Alex Chason out there on the first power play unit. So, why? for me, that's the frustration, right? It's, it's why is... Alex Chase on the next choice when you have a productive, dynamic, highly skilled winger who's a right-handed shot like Connor Garland that you can put in that spot. And I, I, you could look at it and say, you know, is Connor Garland a, a, um, a dangerous shooting threat in the same way that some other power play weapons? But or, yes, he or is. Or is he more of he a playmaker? Is. He is, though. Like, he has a really good one-timer. He absolutely can be that shooting threat. But more than that, he brings like a certain zaniness, yes. you know, to everything he does. He's always moving his feet. Like that's, you want an answer to your static power play, just put him out there. He's going to force players to adjust to him just because he's going to go freelancing. That's what he does. Like I was looking at it because I look at, I, I like to look after 10 games and see like a sustainability check, right? Like what are yep. we, what are we seeing that's real? What are we seeing that's not? 
And there's a lot of Canucks, like Brock Besser's been really unlucky offensively, right? Um, he, he's going to start to produce a fair bit more because the bounce, like Brock Besser hasn't been on the ice for a five on five goal four. In, no matter how few chances the Canucks are generating, that's not going to last, right? Nope. Now, with Connor Garland, he's had a point, for example, on every goal that the Canucks have scored with him on the ice five on five. That's also not going to last. But then I looked at his career sort of track record, and he typically is involved in something like 75%. Like, he gets a point on 75% of the offense scored when he's on the ice. Granted, he played for a pretty underpowered Arizona Coyotes offense for most of his career. But nonetheless, like, it makes so much sense when you see him play that this guy is so directly involved in what's happening because of the way that he's he's kind of like a ball-dominant point guard, right? Like, he's always got the puck. Um, so that's not necessarily going to regress as much as it would in the case of a normal player. Like, he's so involved. Conscript that onto PP1. Conscript that additional puck-carrying wild card into the mix. Uh, some unpredictability is like exactly what PP1 needs. There's no one less predictable right now on this roster than Connor. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Almost more than his specific skill set and where he fits in on kind of the schematic of the power play is, as you said, he is just he's a unique player. He does unique things yeah. in the offensive zone and more than anything else, it just feels like that power play needs a shock to the system, right? To get out of what's familiar and what they're doing and to try some different things and you feel that if Connor Garland is out there, inherently different things are going to be happening because that's what he does. He does odd, unpredictable, unfamiliar things with the puck, and it might look weird. It might look kind of janky at times, but janky is that, the right word. That's kind of what the power play needs. Like totally. the power play could use some some unpredictable looks, like because right now it's extremely, extremely predictable. And I I still think that ultimately what I want to see is Brock Besser in the one timer position with Pedersen in the other one timer position. So you have two legit scoring threats, shooting threats there, and you build the power play out from that. But in the meantime, I'm all for – you. you th- that, that's the thing. We spent all summer talking about the depth of talented forwards that this team has now. You have legitimate power play options that are currently on your second unit, right? Mm-hmm. Niels Hoaglander can be a legit guy on a first power play unit. Connor Garland can be a legit guy on a first power play unit. I don't know about unit. Niels. We'll see. But he, what I'm saying is it's not ridiculous to try no. it there. If no, you're looking not. to give a unit a jolt of energy, it's not, oh, man, what are you doing putting Hoaglander out there, right? No, He's not. a guy who can keep up, at least. Same with Connor Garland. You have these options to try. I don't know why Alex Chason is the, oh, it's not working. Better put Chason back out there option. Like, you have other options. I think, I think it's because Chason's the the dirty goal option you know I think it's like when things are struggling it's like let's just get a point shot goal that's screened let's put our biggest right-handed body out there um I mean I still think the biggest right-handed body that they could put out there is Tyler Myers but so we, it goes. we've had that come in I, I I know I'm 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 a big believer like if you're if your sole obsession is let's take the goalie's eyes away and get and have a righty down low it's like you got a six foot seven guy with pretty good puck skills you know like I I, I mean I, again I I'm not actually advocating for this. I'm just saying if that's the thought process, you've got literally the biggest human in the NHL you can put there. Don't you think Tyler Myers would just love playing that role too? No. Probably no, not. you don't no, think so? No. Tyler, I think he would embrace Tyler it. Tyler Myers is like a pretty good power play defenseman for for over the course of his career, right? He spent a lot of time running power plays. I don't think he views himself as a net front guy, but 
you know, it could work. A chance to do something unique as a defenseman? I mean, it, I, I don't think so. I, I it's This isn't like in <laughs> basketball. Like in basketball, all big men want to be guards right, and all right, guards right, want right. to be big men. Yeah. I don't think hockey's like that. Like defensemen like to be defensemen. Tyler Myers likes to get up sometimes. He he, he likes he, he likes, likes to get up offensively. But, no, I know. I, I'm not recommending Tyler Myers play right wing. I'm just recommending that Tyler Myers, you know, if you need yeah, a yeah, big yeah. bodied righty, he's your guy. Uh, lots of thoughts coming in on the power play. This went unsigned. Remember a couple of seasons ago when we were looking forward to Hughes feeding Besser and Petey on either dot for years and years to come. I do remember that. Still think it's something that could materialize frustrating that hasn't been given the opportunity see i'm now at the point where i want to see garland there like that's fair i want to see garland i I, i'm at the point where i want to see garland up high for a bit with power play one personnel uh but i'm also happy to see besser and pd on the flanks with hughes horvat miller down the middle i mean that to me is the most obvious solution and then you have garland to cook with pp2 and based on what we saw with Garland, OEL, Hoaglander up high yesterday on power play too. Like, I'm pretty interested in seeing what they can do given yep. a given a, a bit more leash, a bit more time there. Um, so, you know, I, I, look, they have options. Like, they have options. They haven't gone to me to what's the most obvious one, which the texter alluded to too, which is Besser, Hughes, Petey up high. And Okanagan Guido text in as well. Uh, Hughes and Petey are at their best in dynamic situations. A stationary power play approach takes away their best attributes. Uh, while Hughes can walk the line well, he needs to be able to roam. It's up to King and others to create a system that takes advantage of this. And ultimately, to me, that is what it comes down to, is you have to find a way to unlock the the inherent creativity and skill of these players, which right now is not being maximized. And whether that's with Garland on that unit, whether it's with Besser in a different spot, whether you have to be with JT Miller, whatever it is, you have to find a way where you're getting the most out of Pedersen and Hughes specifically, their skills, but also their creativity, their IQ, their hockey sense. For sure. And, you know, the power play, if the power play is firing at all, I'm not saying having a lights out game, firing at all, this is a regulation win for the Canucks, right? This is not a, a game that looks dicey for them after two, right? If the power play was on at all, this would have been an easy Canucks victory, or should and should have been like it should have been an easy Canucks victory. Um, there's games where not having the power play going is going to cost them, particularly with how their five-on-five offense is generating right now. So it's really high leverage that they figure this out. Like this team cannot make the playoffs without a power play that's very good, twenty percent plus. And right now, obviously. They're not close to that. I believe 0 for 12 uh, over their last 12 on the power play. And that's, as you said, that's just not good enough. That's not what this, that's not how this team is going to survive, how this team is going to get to where what they've said is their expectation, which is to make the playoffs. Uh, Canucks Hour here on 650, on Sportsnet 650. Keep your texts coming in. Plenty of good ones coming in about the power play, other things going on. In the uh, Canucks game last night, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Well, we're watching the replay on Sportsnet. We just saw the JT Miller goal, but it also reminded me of the Pedersen back check that sets it up. We got we to gotta note that, too, because I do think we saw a bit of the return of, like, two-way Pedersen. Yep. And that's really important. This guy doesn't need to be a 90-point or 100-point player. I mean, I had a pro scout in his second season, tell me that they thought one year Pedersen was going to win a scoring title. And I remember my eyes widened. I was like, oh, my goodness, that's wild. I don't ever think he actually needs to be that guy if he can be the dominant two-way center who also scores a ton and keys your power play. 
You know, like that that would be an enormously valuable player for the Canucks. I do believe that he I do believe that he can be a franchise caliber player. He hasn't been to this point in his career. Very few players are before they're 22, 23, and even those that are hit a new level as we've seen McDavid hit at you know 24 right. through through 26. Um but yeah, I mean, I do think that back check a lot of what we saw yesterday was like the return of that two-way assertiveness from Pedersen to that overarching intelligence um, that, you know, when he's on is just so noticeable in everything he does. It's such an important part of his game. And in the interest of fairness, you know, we've pointed out in the games he's played poorly, how poor, how badly they've been outshot with him on the ice. So five on five, six, two were shots in favor of the Canucks of Elias yeah. Pedersen. Now, to be fair, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the players up the lineup had a really good night in that metric. I do want to talk about a couple of players who did not have a good performance based on those metrics. And that's a defense pairing that we raised some questions about on the show yesterday. Drancer Travis Hamannick in his debut on the season, playing with Luke Shen. We talked about the power play. That was obviously to me, the biggest negative for the Canucks last night in second place was that pairing, which I thought really struggled. Yeah. I mean, make sure you've had your 11s is cause that was an adventure um, with, Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Hamannick and Shen gave up a breakaway on their very first shift. I didn't like their game at five on five. I thought Hamannick had some good moments shorthanded uh, overall. Like, I, I thought he was useful for sure in his Canucks debut. But five on five, that pair, I don't feel like that's something I need to see a lot more of. No. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, sometimes you look at a pairing or a combo or or an idea on the power play and you think, oh, that looks kind of weird. I'm not sure what's going on there. And then it'll have a lot of success. You're like, wow, that was unex- unexpected. I, I didn't see that coming. This was the opposite, right? Where you looked at it on paper and you thought, I'm not sure that's going to work. And then it didn't It work. met your expectations. Yes, it was, exactly. oh, yeah, that looked pretty much exactly how I thought it was going to look, right? Those, yeah. They had trouble moving the puck. They, they looked a little discombobulated in the defensive zone, got caught running around. It just wasn't effective. If they stick with it, they will be punished for it at some point. Like, for sure. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not, there's no suspense here. You know, we don't have to, we don't have to sort of nope. um, be polite about it. Like, th- that will be punished at some point. Most of the pressure that the Rangers generated at 5-on-5, five five, I thought, came with those two players on the ice for the Canucks. And, and again, this was a Rangers team that didn't generate a lot of 5-on-5 five five throughout the rest of the game. And as you said, they're... They can't stick with it. They're not, you would think they're not going to stick with it long term. For me now, the question is how do you get Hamannick to a position where you're comfortable pairing him with Hughes? Because as as we've said, the Hughes Poolman pairing is, is not the cleanest fit and hasn't been necessarily effective through so far this season. So, how do you get Hamannick back with Hughes? And then for me, it's reintegrating Jack Rathbone into the lineup, likely on a third pairing with Tucker Pullman at that point. That's that's the direction they should be headed, and it's just or Tyler Myers. what the roadmap is to get there. Or Tyler Myers. Like, why not Myers-Rathbone? Do you want to split Tyler Myers and OEL up at this not point? Not right though? now. Not right now. They've played at a level where I don't think you want to split that up because they have been more than the sum of their parts. But I also think Pullman-OEL, especially if they're going to face a ton of tough minutes, like, you know, I don't love the Pullman fit with Hughes, but it's not because of Pullman's defense. It's because of the puck skills, right? right? Um but if OEL is going to be playing in a ton of tough minutes, I have no problem with him playing with Pullman. And I think there's mo- more mobility overall, even if there's less puck moving ability on that pair. Uh, and then Rathbone and Myers had success last season. They've spent 20-ish minutes together so far this season. The results have been, you know, off the page good. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, that's also your option. And then you change things up situationally, right? Like if you're trailing, um, you, you move, um, Myers up to play with Hughes as right. you so often do, or, yep. or OEL Hughes. And I mean, I just think you have more options and are like your fastest defense pair is those six in the lineup, right? Is, is Hamannick Myers, Pullman on the right, Rathbone with OEL and Hughes on the left. Uh, you know, it, it's still not good enough. Like it's still very much not good enough, but it's the best that they're going to have this season it, barring a trade. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's some, there's at least enough there in terms of the possible fit between Hamannick and Hughes, between the possible fit uh, that Pullman and Rathbone could have, uh, Myers and OEL or or Myers, OEL Pullman, depending on how you shape it. But like, there's enough there that maybe those maybe that group can be more than the sum of their parts, just because there's just enough mobility and just enough defensive intelligence, particularly with what. Pullman and OEL have shown in their own end through 10 games that, that maybe, maybe it can hold the line. And I think the pairings you're suggesting, right, Hughes, Hamannick, OEL, Pullman, Myers, and Rathbone, that's probably how they had it penciled in. In, I think in so, the yeah. summer, right before the Hamannick issue yeah, arose. Except I do think it was Rathbone slash Hunt slash Yolevi. Sure. And now we're at a point where none of those guys are playing. Right. Right? Like that much ballyhooed sort of battle for the third pair left side spot. Um, you know, yesterday it was like Shen with yes. Burroughs as the second choice. You know, it's like things things didn't really go the way they drew it up. Yeah. So I, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see them go to that alignment at some point, because as I said, that was probably their ideal scenario in the summer. I just, I, frankly, I think OEL and Myers have been so effective together. I would be a little reluctant to split that up. But at some point I, we will see OEL with Pullman. And, and look, the way Oliver Ekman Larson has played so far this year, I think you've got to like the potential for him to kind of get the most out of Tucker Pullman. And as you said, be an effective pairing in those kind of heavy, tough minutes. Um, We got a, we got a tweet in from Taze five who says Garland changes direction every two seconds. He's like a hummingbird. Um, <laughs> that's, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, although, although hummingbirds are pretty easy to like lure with syrup. I feel like, <laughs> I feel Garland's like there's a little sharper than that. Well, uh, I mean, there's obviously the, the Travis Konechny thing and then the, the he, syrup being a food group. For, he's for... an angry little elf and a hummingbird. <laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll start I mean, collecting Garland. Yeah, seriously. His, he's, he's getting a lot of them and, and eventually someone will come up with something really good for him. Um, but hopefully me, but the, uh, <laughs> but the fact is, is that. Yeah, I mean, he does. He's always moving, and there, I think there's value to that unpredictability. I just love the hummingbird. That's that's dead on. It's a great comparison. Connor Garland was effective again for the Canucks last night. That's going to do it for the Canucks Hour. We'll, we, we will be back on the air tomorrow, same time, 11 a.m. as always. Thanks for listening. Thanks for texting. You've been listening to the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650.